Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, November 17th, 2019, and this is show number 758. I'm sure by now you've heard the awesome news that Apple came out with the rumored 16-inch MacBook Pro. I've been waiting for this machine, and I immediately jumped online and bought it as soon as it was announced. Now, after the fact, I've been listening to folks talking about it who got to play with it, like Marco Arment and Jason Snell, and they are positively gushing about this laptop, so I am super excited. Now, the options to configure this notebook will absolutely have to silence the critics. Even Stephen Getz says it's pretty cool. While RAM in previous MacBooks Pro was limited to 16 gigabytes, you can configure these new ones to 64 gigabytes. Seriously, think about that. It wasn't that long ago that Apple sold notebooks with 64 gigabytes of disk. Now, uh, I thought two terabytes of SSD was enough for anyone, but the new one can be configured to eight terabytes of storage. Isn't that bananas? Now, I think you should applaud me that while I did go for the 64 gigabytes of RAM, because, oh my gosh, 64 gigabytes of RAM... I held strong and I only got a four terabyte SSD instead of instead of eight. I cannot wait to run the live show on this beast and see whether an eight core 2.4 gigahertz i9 with top of the end, uh, top of the top end of graphics Apple sells and 64 gigabytes of RAM can handle everything I throw at it and maybe not have the fans blazing at me throughout the show. So I figured, go big or go home, I shelled out the extra $8 shipping to get it as early as this coming Thursday. Now, the question is, do I do a pave and not migrate any apps so it's a true clean install? Or do I migrate what I just finished building a month ago, uh, doing the Nuke and Pave and then migrating from Mojave to macOS Catalina? We'll see which I decide to do. On Chit Chat Across the Pond this week, Bart Shots takes us back through JavaScript function objects in our latest episode of Programming by Stealth. In this, he explains the three different ways to define a function. It was really great to have them all put together in one place at one time to refresh our memory. He explains how only one of these three methods is hoisted, which led him to explain the medieval history reference of hoisted by your own petard. We went from there to function scope and enjoyed some time going through advanced arguments, which is actually way more fun than it sounds. Things took a turn for the weird when Bart explained fully simplified fat arrow syntax as all common language conventions completely disappeared. Now, at one point in this whole conversation, we talked about Bart wearing a tutu. You will have to listen to learn exactly how that was actually in context of learning JavaScript. You can listen to this episode in your podcatcher of choice in the Programming by Stealth feed, or you can listen while reading along with Bart's fabulous tutorial show notes, which of course are linked in my show notes. I was watching the news last week during the awful California fires, and they interviewed a guy who only had time to grab his family and run out of their home before it was engulfed in flames. He told the reporter that he didn't have time to get his laptop, on which he had his children's baby photos and they were not backed up. Now, I'm sure if you've been listening here and to other tech podcasts for any length of time, you have backups. I also hope you have off-site backups just in case of fire, flood, hurricane, tornado, or plain old burglary. In the old days, it was hard to do backups, but nowadays, you know, you really have no excuse. 
Between Time Machine, cloning apps like SuperDuper and Carbon Copy Cloner, Backblaze for offsite backups, you know, you really have no excuse. And you've got syncing services like Dropbox, Google Drive, OneDrive, and iCloud, which aren't truly backups, but they do give you some level of protection from disaster. Now, I've been using SuperDuper for ages to do my local clone backups. I don't remember how long ago I bought it, but it's been a really, really long time. You can download SuperDuper from shirt-pocket.com and use it for free to do a full clone backup. The developer, Dave Nadian, allows you to do that and entices you to buy the product by offering extra features. With the licensed version, you can schedule your backups, which I think is essential to make sure that they actually happen. You want yourself out of the loop on remembering to do your backups. You can also do incremental backups with the licensed version, so you don't have to wait for the entire disk to be cloned every time when only a few things have changed. You can exclude items as well. Maybe you don't want to backup Dropbox because, well, that's already in the cloud. You could exclude it with your licensed version of SuperDuper. As Bart would say, SuperDuper does what it says on the tin, but it is not an elegant or pretty application. It's more what I would call utilitarian. The website is worse than utilitarian. It's ancient. The menu bar looks like the old Aqua interface from 2000. That's 19 years ago, folks. The text on the menu bar is also fuzzy and hard to read. Now, not to pour gasoline on a fire, but the second tab on the Shirt-Pocket website is for a product called Nettoons. And if you go to that tab, there's a banner saying that it's not yet leopard compatible. (laughs) Seriously. While the website was pretty accessible on VoiceOver, there were a few crucially unlabeled buttons in the app, like the one you need to press to start the clone in SuperDuper. When it came time to upgrade to macOS Catalina, I repurposed the mind map I created for my clean installs to keep track of which apps were ready to go to Catalina. I track apps in three categories, mission critical, important, and less important. With the dumpster fire that has been Apple's recent OS releases, I gotta tell you, I was not in any hurry to migrate my production Mac, so I took my time and kept track of everything in my mind map. Now, I had one irritant in not going to macOS Catalina right away, and that was the Reminders app. While Apple gave a huge warning on iOS that if you allowed Reminders to upgrade to their brand new database, you would lose your Reminders on all of your other non-upgraded devices. I did not heed that warning and I upgraded. Then Apple did exactly what they said would happen and erased all of my reminders on my Mojave Mac. Now I use reminders quite a bit and it was as annoying as heck that I wasn't getting reminded of things and couldn't create new reminders on my Mac. So I really, really wanted to go to Catalina. Finally, I was able to get to the point where all of my mission critical apps and most of my important apps were painted green in iThoughts, designating them as Catalina ready except for one, SuperDuper. When I researched the app on Shirt-Pocket, I learned that the app was still in beta 4 for macOS Catalina. Now, I really enjoy running beta software when it's not mission critical. Pretty much the last thing I would beta test would be my backup software. I tend to be loyal to the products and services I use, which is a bit of a curse. I have trouble just dropping one brand and jumping to another easily, and it's an instinct I have to actively fight. But it was time to look elsewhere for my clone backups. I decided to check out SuperDuper's main competitor, Carbon Copy Cloner, from bombich.com. That's spelled B-O-M-B-I-C-H dot com. 
Now, forever I've heard people saying great things about Carbon Copy Cloner and its founder, Mike Bombage. The first thing I did was check for compatibility with macOS Catalina, and I was delighted to learn that Carbon Copy Cloner was working way back in August, even in the betas of macOS Catalina. That's really kind of a miracle that it didn't break during the anarchy that has been the Catalina development cycle. Carbon Copy Cloner is 40 bucks compared to the $28 of SuperDuper, but having a current, modern app is well worth the difference in price to me. Now, this might be a great example of you get what you pay for. When you think about what you're protecting with a clone backup solution, does 40 bucks sound like very much money? You know, if you could save, I don't know, your child's first dance recital video, your honeymoon photos, your tax records, yeah, I'd say 40 bucks is a steal. Now, you don't have to shell out any money to find out if Carbon Copy Cloner will work for you because they recommend that you download it and use it for 30 days first. I used it for 24 hours and I decided to buy it. The interface of Carbon Copy Cloner is clean and modern with just a few buttons across the top, a left sidebar, and a center pane that's called the Task Plan. Carbon Copy Cloner allows you to save different clone operations as separate tasks. I can see maybe you want to make a copy of just your tax folder onto a thumb drive and that you maybe keep in a safe, but you have another task that's your full clone backup that you take to your mom's house every week. In the left sidebar, you create these tasks and name them. The bottom left of the pane shows the volumes Carbon Copy Cloner has recognized from which you choose to copy from and to for your backups. Then in the center task pane area, sorry, task plan area, you'll see the three big areas inviting you to select to choose a source, a destination, and set a schedule. The graphics are gorgeous and more importantly intuitive as you set up these options. When selecting a destination, for example, you'll see nice icons for your internal and external volumes, but you can also choose a folder, a new disk image, an existing disk image, or even a remote Macintosh. Now, I've only ever backed up to a local drive before, but the idea of backing up from one Mac to another is kind of intriguing. I've got a perfectly good Mac Mini sitting across the hall from me as my Plex server, connected via hardwired Ethernet, I could actually use some of its extra disk space to back up my files. When I chose the remote Mac option, I was asked to authenticate. Carbon Copy Cloner then informed me that for future connections to this remote Mac, it will use public key authentication, PKA, and it asked my permission to install my public key over on the remote Mac. That was very secure, very modern, and very, very awesome. I chose a folder on my Mac, pointed to a folder on the remote Mac Mini as a backup destination, and boom, I had a backup from one Mac to the other. I really thought that was cool. Carbon Copy Cloner has an option to send mail when a backup fails, and I'd really like to use this option, but it does not work for me. I suspect this is not Carbon Copy Cloner's fault. When Bart helped me set up what's called a cron job in Linux land to download a backup from my website every day to one of my Macs, we tried to have it send mail and it wouldn't work there either. Bart says it's my ISP blocking this function, and I never got around to figuring out if there's a way to get the ISP to stop blocking that. Okay, okay, that was cool. But what about the big clone job? I keep my backup drive plugged in. It's a two terabyte Samsung T5, only $300 on Amazon right now, and of course available in smaller sizes for your holiday shopping. Anyway, I chose the T5 as my clone backup destination and my internal drive with copy all files selected in the pull down. 
In the third pane, I chose a schedule to run at 11 a.m. every day. Carbon Copy Cloner includes an interesting feature called Safety Net. They explain that when people buy giant drives for the backups, they often cannot resist the temptation to use some of that storage space for other things. If you've got a 512 gig internal drive and a three terabyte spinning backup drive, could you resist the temptation to put other stuff over there? Well, with SafetyNet turned on, those items that aren't part of the source destination can actually be preserved. I'm now just now learning about snapshots, so I don't con- completely understand another function of SafetyNet. According to the documentation, if you back up to an APFS formatted destination volume, Carbon Copy Cloner creates a safety net snapshot on the destination. I suspect this is why my clone is taking up 1.84 gigabytes while my source disk is only 1.01 terabytes. I'm going to be poking around in there via the terminal to learn more, but for now I'm going to assume that's why. In the old days of backups, programs saved your data in arcane data structures inoperable by anything but themselves. You had little opportunity to verify your backups, which you totally should do, and you could never migrate a backup to a new tool. One of the great joys of modern-day clone backups is they look just like the source data. With a clone, you should see a duplicate of your entire file structure. When I ran Carbon Copy Cloner for the first time, I didn't bother to reformat my backup drive that I'd been using with SuperDuper, figuring Carbon Copy Cloner would probably give me a warning that it was about to erase my drive before beginning, but I didn't get that warning. I thought that was kind of odd, but it went to town running a backup, and in short order, it claimed to be finished. That's when I realized it was able to simply pick up right where SuperDuper had left off. It recognized that the destination drive had most of what I had on my source drive, and it simply brought it up to date. At least I think that's what it did. There's a very nicely formatted task history list that shows the task uh, task name, the source, the destination, the start time, and elapsed time. It also shows how much data was copied and the status, either a green circle with a check mark or a red circle with an X. I can see that my first backup with Carbon Copy Cloner only took 29 minutes, but it copied 176 gigabytes. But my daily 11 a.m. backups since then are only averaging around 8 minutes and moving around 15 gigabytes. I'm not 100% certain why that first backup is big, but not huge. I thought it might have something to do with this snapshot capability in Carbon Copy Cloner, but I checked my destination volume and it shows snapshot creation is off. Hmm. I did look to see if I had created a safety net folder because I thought some of this data was from some other source, but there's nothing there. So that's a little curious. With SuperDuper, though, my clones never took less than a half an hour on their daily schedule, even though it was only incremental backups and it was going between wicked fast SSDs. Seeing that Carbon Copy Cloner does the backups in about eight minutes every morning, I might let it do it more often. Maybe I'll go crazy and back up twice a day. Speaking of incremental backups, on SuperDuper, there was a specific pull-down to select to do incremental versus a full backup each time. I hunted everywhere in Carbon Copy Cloner for how to make it be an incremental backup before I realized it always uses incremental. I guess if you want a full backup, you'd have to erase the destination first. I might do that just to figure out why the backup is taking up so much space. Oh, before I forget, Remember to test your clone backup. Remember I mentioned that earlier? You want to do that when nothing is going wrong to make sure it actually looks just like your internal disk and you can boot from it. 
Also remember, if you're running a modern Mac, oh, that reminds me, my new Mac, I'm going to need to remember to do this. The more modern Macs are called, uh, have a T2 chip in them. And you need to uh, make sure you go into the startup security utility and check the box to allow booting from external media. By default, that is turned off, which means you can make that really swell backup, but you're not going to be able to boot to it in an emergency. You want to be able to do that so that, I mean, you, you can get your data back later with your after you get things fixed, like maybe you had a hard drive failure. But if you want to be able to just keep working for a little while until you have time to take your Mac in to get repaired, you really do want to be able to boot from that backup. So, you know, if you want to stick with Apple's choice on this and keep that turned off, that's fine. But make sure you understand the repercussions of that if you do. For those of you who are voiceover users, I poked around a bit with voiceover on in Carbon Copy Cloner. I keep stuttering on that. Carbon Copy Cloner. And with voiceover on, I was not able to find a menu or button that was unlabeled or didn't function. And, uh, you know, it seemed to seemed to really work. Now, keep in mind, I'm a novice voiceover user, so that's not a full seal of approval. But usually I can pretty quickly stumble across some problems if the developer has not been doing their job properly to make their application accessible. So it's at least worth doing the 30-day download trial if you're a voiceover user. In my article about the Mac Tech Conference, I explained that with macOS Catalina, we now have two volumes on our boot drives. You can see them in disk utility as your hard drive followed by dash data. And that's where your data lives. The second one is shown without the suffix, which is your operating system disk. This design gives us further protection from malware. Now, I remind you about this because in Carbon Copy Cloner, you can inspect your volumes as well. For my internal SSD, playfully named Hippo because it's so big. Oh, man, what am I going to call a four terabyte disk? Because I started with... um, what was the first one? I can't remember now, but I had another name other than Hippo for my one terabyte drive and two terabytes was Hippo. I'll have to work on that. Anyway, when I when I inspect my internal SSD, Hippo, I see Hippo-data and plain old Hippo. Likewise, I can see two volumes for my backup drive. The first of these in each pair is kind of terrifying at first. I inspected my backup drive and it said, operating system, colon, macOS not installed. Wait, what? You're supposed to be a bootable clone, darn it. Then I calmed down and I looked at the backup disk volume without data after it. And it said operating system, colon, macOS Catalina 10.5.1. Was doing it right. Now I wanted you to walk through that so you don't think Carbon Copy Cloner is doing something crazy here. It's Apple who has made this new structure for us. By the way, it's also in this inspector area that you can turn on and off Carbon Copy Cloner snapshots. As I said, I need to learn more about snapshots before I make any recommendations on what you might want to do here. This week's Time Machine told Steve that his internal drive was nearly full, even though GetInfo said it should only be half full. Luckily, I'm an avid listener of the Mac Geek app, and I had learned that there was this whole concept of Time Machine snapshots and how sometimes they kind of go rogue and fill up your internal drive. I did some searching and I learned about thinning said snapshots and we were able to recover his lost disk space. I don't understand what caused them to turn against Steve, so I'm going to stay away from snapshots and carbon copy cloner until I really understand how they work. The last thing I wanted to mention about carbon copy cloner is the licensing. Like I said, 40 bucks to preserve what's important to me me is absolute chump change, 
But I was wondering, do I have to buy a separate license for Steve? Well, luckily, the answer is no. In a support article on bombitch.com, it says, the Carbon Copy Cloner license allows you to install and use Carbon Copy Cloner on any computer that you own or control for personal non-commercial use. He's got other licensing for commercial or institutional use, including academic purchasing options. The bottom line is that I'm delighted that I've moved off of the ancient Super Duper and onto the more modern Carbon Copy Cloner. I probably should have done this ages ago, and I'm sure at least half of you are thinking, man, what took you so long? All the cool kids have been on Carbon Copy Cloner for ages. But hey, I got there in the end. If you're not doing local clone backups and you need that little push to get started, I can really endorse Carbon Copy Cloner. It's a free 30-day trial. What do you have to lose? This week, Steve and I had an extraordinary experience. Pat Dangler sent me an invite to an event hosted by Women Who Code, and this event was hosted at SpaceX. And get this, they said we'd get to go on a tour of SpaceX before the event. They said they welcomed diversity at this event, so Steve decided to go along. Now, we'll both have to admit that the tour of SpaceX was the big draw, and I'm actually not going to talk about the Women Who Code thing. We got there super early and yet had a lot of trouble finding the entrance. We found the door where we were supposed to go in, but it was locked. Eventually, the door opened, and I asked the gentleman coming out of it if he knew if we were at the right door for the tour. He said, yeah, I'm pretty sure like any tours are going to be canceled because like they were moving equipment or something, so I don't think you have a tour. We were bummed. But you know what? Just wondered, was he really an authoritative source? We eventually found that they had moved our entry to the main lobby, where we found a ton of people waiting for the tour. So that guy didn't know what he was talking about. Whew, that was close. Then we went through the check-in process, but the little man behind the counter said, I wasn't on the list. Oh, that's not good at all. I was like, oh, no. Anyway, I pulled up my reservation on my phone, and in looking at it, we both discovered that somehow my last name had gotten changed to I-N instead of Sheridan. I don't know where IN came from, but luckily they adapted and I was able to get on the list. I have to say, the tool was the tour was absolutely spectacular. And we were not allowed to take any photographs. It was so frustrating, but it turns out we were able to uh, at least get one shot of us in the lobby and one of us outside standing in front of the Falcon 9 rocket, but nothing inside. I, I think in a way it it helped it. I don't know, become more special because we had to just really just absorb it instead of concentrating so much on taking photos. So I'm going to try to give you a sense of how amazing it was painting a picture for you since we have no pictures to prove we actually were inside. I have to say, I'm so glad Steve was able to go because he loves all things space and he especially loves the Falcon 9 rocket, which is built in its entirety under this one roof. We're doing the live show right now, and he's actually wearing a Falcon 9 shirt. That's how much he loves the Falcon 9. He watches every single launch, and he's a member of a Discord group for the Miko podcast. Miko stands for Main Engine Cutoff, and it's a show all about NASA, SpaceX, Blue Origin, and anyone else who is flinging things into space. So for Steve to get to go see SpaceX was a dream come true. Like I said, I'm going to try to do my best to describe what we found really interesting on the tour with the full knowledge that it will be impossible to convey how cool it was. When we first walked in, on our right-hand side was the control room where they watched the launches. 
This was cool because it's the view you see most of the time that a launch is underway, as they report from this room. Our guide pointed up and behind us to the balcony cafeteria where SpaceX employees congregate to watch. We could feel the excitement we'd seen in these very rooms as launches succeed and the booster recovery failed or succeeded. Our tour guide explained that any SpaceX employee can apply to be one of the people doing the color commentary on the launches. I thought that was very cool, and it explains why we often see fairly junior employees fully explaining the complexities of spaceflight while we're watching. Above us, as we stood next to the control room, was a recovered Cargo Dragon capsule. This is the capsule that contained supplies that were delivered to the International Space Station and then returned to Earth. Crazy cool to stand under something that had been in space. Steve noted that the heat shield that faced Earth as it plummeted through our atmosphere had a very asymmetric pattern on it, indicating that the capsule was designed to enter the atmosphere at a specific angle. If you'd like to read up on the mechanics of calculating that angle so the capsule doesn't experience too much deceleration versus not enough angle such that it skips off, off this atmosphere, I found a very readable article over at theconversation.com. Link in the show notes. When I was working as a mechanical engineer, I worked on mirrors and other optics that would be connected to what is called an optical bench. The optical bench was just a frame to hold everything, but it had to be very stable through changes in temperatures. Metals expand and contract when experiencing temperature fluctuations, and while some experience less of this effect, there is a better solution than using metal. Carbon fiber is the answer to it because it has high stiffness, high tensile strength, low weight, high chemical resistance for fun, high temperature tolerance, and low thermal expansion. Now, carbon fiber does have to be painstakingly applied in layers to build up the strength in all directions. So they do them all kinds of diagonals and perpendicular to each other, and and, uh, that allows it to be strong in all directions. This process is very time-consuming and very expensive, but it's unique in the trade-offs of strength, weight, and temperature tolerance. We built the optical bench using carbon fiber for all of these reasons. I got to see it and work with the final product, but I was always kind of bummed that I never got to see how carbon fiber was actually made. I tell you this whole story from the past because I was thrilled to see at SpaceX how they make the fairings. These are built in two lengthwise halves. These fairings are the nose cone and cylinder that, when sealed together, protect the launch vehicle payload against the impact of dynamic pressure and aerodynamic heating during launch through an atmosphere. SpaceX makes these giant fairings out of carbon fiber, and we got to see how they lay them out. Imagine a professional holiday wrapping station with a roll of paper at one end that you drag out and then cut to size. Except now picture it 30 to 40 feet long and maybe 15 feet wide. It thrilled my little mechanical engineering nerd heart. A little farther along, we saw a fairing in the later stages of completion. We saw a robot with a huge, like 10 foot tall U-shaped black thing under the fairing, which was sitting with the concave surface down. I asked if that big, huge U-shaped thing was a a big cable wrap to allow the machine to move along the length of the fairing and still get power and all the other signals, but it was something way cooler than that. It was a giant magnet. Our guide explained that it was involved in the inspection of the interior of the fairing to look for imperfections. She said it used to be done by humans, but it was really inefficient and that Elon hates inefficiency, so they designed this instead. I really do wish I understood what a magnet has to do with the inspection of imperfections. 
We were eventually standing between two fairings. Our guide pointed out that on our right was a fairing that was just recently completed, but the one on our left had been to space and been recovered. I asked a really dumb question at this point. I asked, how come the salt water doesn't wreck the electronics and such on the inside of the fairing? She and Steve explained, the fairing doesn't fall into the ocean. They didn't say, you idiot. They said they catch it with a giant net on a drone ship. How cool is that? Anyway, we talked about the recovery of the fairing. And of course, we've all seen the recovery of the rocket boosters actually landing on drone ships and one time in dual synchronicity on the ground. She explained that they considered trying to recover the second stage as well, but the recoveries they were already doing were 80% of the cost of a complete Falcon 9. Rather than spend the R&D to try and chase the diminishing returns of that last 20%, the decision was made to put their money towards Starship, the new spaceship that will take humanity to Mars. Yeah, that's how Elon thinks. I don't know how to explain why it was so cool to stand about 10 feet away from a couple of people assembling the Merlin engine. I know it's just machinery, but this engine has propelled the Falcon 1, the Falcon 9, and even the Falcon Heavy launch vehicles into space. We were right next to it being assembled. Again, the pitter-patter of our little nerd hearts. The Falcon 9 rocket body sections are also assembled in the same factory. We saw one of these huge 12-foot diameter cylindrical sections lying on its side. Our tour guide explained that this factory is unusual and that SpaceX rockets are assembled horizontally rather than vertically. She pointed out a machine that she described as looking like Stargate. She called it that because it holds the rocket sections and then spins the two sections in opposite directions while making contact at enormous velocity. This spinning causes friction in the metals, and they actually liquefy under speed, which causes friction welding. I had never heard of such a thing. We didn't get to see it spin, but man, it was was crazy cool just even imagining it doing that. Now, every part of this 24 by 7 running factory was accessible as this one giant open area, with one exception, and that was the 3D metal printing area. They had a window into this area and on the outside, a video running showing how 3D printing works of metals. Now, our tour guide said that they actually create production parts in there. I was doubtful of that at first because 3D printing is really slow. Then I was thinking about it in such small production runs, perhaps that is the way they can make more complex geometries efficiently. Steve noted that there was a warning sign before entering that that said breathing protection was required because of titanium dust. Okay, that's crazy. As we started back towards the front, an overhead crane started to move maybe 40 feet above our heads. We were kind of surprised they just kind of let us walk right under there. We didn't even have hard hats on. Which, by the way, is something I find really comical anyway. I mean, if something went wrong with that crane, I'm not sure a hard hat would be anything more than decorative. The final thing we saw in our short tour was a real curiosity. Coming out of the wall between the command center and the balcony cafeteria was a full-sized Falcon 9 landing leg strut. We assumed it was a mock-up at first, but Steve got up really close to it and found out it was made of carbon fiber. So it was the real deal, which our tour guide then confirmed. We assume it was probably a pre-production piece, but that was still cool. It was huge. (laughs) Well, after the tour was over, we found out this was the first large group public tour that they'd ever done at SpaceX. 
I'm sure there's like super important people who can get in. I don't know, maybe people with money or the government, but there's no way to just ask for a tour to like sign up. I want a tour. Even employees can only take in two friends per year. We knew this was special to us, but we had no idea how rare of an opportunity this actually was. I loved every minute out of it, but I got to say for Steve, this is in his died and gone to heaven category of experiences. It's probably up there with hiking to Machu Picchu and swimming with penguins. Well, I wouldn't normally post a tiny tip about a specific problem with a specific piece of software, but when my father-in-law ran into the exact same problem I had, updating one password... I figured it might be a widespread problem, and I know we have a lot of 1Password-loving friends in the Nocilla Castaway community, so here we are. There appears to be a problem fully quitting 1Password in the version immediately before 7.4.1 from the Mac App Store. I don't know what the version is before 7.4.1 because I am now successfully updated, so it's whatever's before that. Anyway, when I saw the update thing come in for the Mac App Store, I hit the update button in the Mac App Store, as I always do. Now, as always happens, it tried, and then it came back and it said, hey, you got to quit 1Password. Can I quit it for you? I allowed the Mac App Store to quit the app, but it didn't do the update. It didn't work. So I quit 1Password myself and tried again, but still no joy. I then went into Activity Monitor and I discovered that while 1Password itself was no longer running, the Helper app was still running. No problem. I forced quit the Helper app in Activity Monitor, but it didn't die. All right. Now this is the gauntlet's been thrown down. This is a challenge. I opened up the terminal and I did a kill dash nine all over that helper app using its process ID. But the helper app was a zombie. It came back with a new process ID. I tried three times without successfully killing it off. It just kept popping right back up with the new process ID. I finally gave up and I wrote to AgileBits, the fine developers of 1Password, and my little friend Zach wrote back 14 minutes later, with the following message. He said, if you open your current installation of 1Password 7, you can use the keyboard shortcut Control-Option-Command-Q to quit it completely. That should allow you to install the latest update, which in turn should resolve this issue in the future. And his advice worked like a champ. So when my father-in-law called with the same problem, Steve gave him the command and it worked for him too. Now, we were thinking about why didn't Steve and his mom have the same problem, and we're wondering if it's because we're both the managers of our family plans, and maybe that's the only people it affected? Not really sure. Or maybe Ken and I were just really unlucky and we're the only two people with this problem. In any case, I was really happy that the problem is resolved in the future after the successful update, when that was really, really good news. Agile Bits was on top of this for me, and if you get plagued with the same problem, I hope this tiny tip will save a support call for you and for them. Did you know that the NoSilicast, Chit Chat Across the Pond Light, and Programming by Stealth are not supported by ads? They're supported by you. If you find the content you gain through the PodFeed podcast to be interesting, informative, or just entertaining, please consider showing your appreciation for that value by giving some value back. Be like the awesome Ricky Rodriguez, who went to podfeed.com slash Patreon and chose a dollar amount to donate per week to help support the show. It's easy, and even a $1 contribution per show adds up to a lot if enough people become patrons. 
Thank you, Ricky, for your support of the Podfeet Podcast. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchats, and we're recording on a Sunday afternoon, evening, night. How's it going today, Bart? It is going just fine because I am in, <clears throat> indoors with the central heating on. It is literally freezing. Oh, I wish we could just level this out. It's 89 degrees at uh, quarter to three in, at my house right now. It's boiling outside. Ooh, yeah. So if we averaged it out, we'd both be happy. <laughs> yeah, we'd be m- mediocre temperatures. But this isn't this week in uh, temperatures. It is security bits. What's going on this week? Um, Before we get stuck into new stuff, just a little follow up. We talked last time about the very disingenuous presentation that the um, an association of American ISPs was giving to Congress, basically saying you got to stop DOH because Google Wait, It made no what? sense. It was nonsense. It was garbage. And thankfully, Mozilla took the time to point by point refute the nonsense um, and make their own presentation to Congress, basically saying, don't listen to that lot. Here's what's actually happening. So So were they were they trying to say that uh, DOH would allow Google to spy on you or something? Yes. Okay. yes. Their theory of the, the their theory was that because Chrome was enabling DOH, therefore all DNS was going to Google wrong. And therefore, instead of it saving the internet, it meant that only Google could sell ads and the ISPs couldn't spy on people anymore, and that was bad. Okay. It was a terrible, terrible argument, and it was full of outright falsehoods. Okay, great. Well, good. So either they're ignorant, incompetent, or malicious. It's another Pick good one. reason to have Mozilla exist, right? Because they're not in the, the, the chain of pain anywhere that I know of. They're a little more credible sources as a, you know, they're kind of, kind of Switzerland in this. Yes. As a charitable foundation, they don't have the same kind of horse in the game like the ISPs and Google do. They don't sell ads. Yeah. So, yeah, Yeah, no, you're right. Actually, it is actually very good to have them there. So if you want to read their refutation, you know, link in show notes, et cetera. Great. Um, And we should mention that if by some miracle, someone listening to this show has an old Windows machine and hasn't yet applied the Blue Keep patch from months ago, Microsoft have issued yet another warning telling people you really, 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 really should patch because now there's attacks in the wild. So it's not just a hypothetically evil and dangerous vulnerability, it's an actual existent in the wild being actually attacked by actual bad guys' vulnerability. So for goodness sake, patch those windows xp and windows 7 machines please so this is okay this is windows 7 yeah so this is a few it's it's i mean it's literally months ago now they they surprised everyone by patching the unsupported os's oh right 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 that was it okay so that's this one so really you know like they went to all that bother to to patch an unsupported os the least you can do is apply the update (laughs) okay in terms of notable security updates, then Linux users should all update their flavors of Linux because there has been a fairly nasty bug squished in LibArchive, which is the open source library which provides just about every Linux version with its ability to deal with compressed archives, be they zip files, tar, GZ files, etc. Hmm. So that's pretty ubiquitous, but it has been patched. So, you know, update. 
Yum update or apt-get update or whatever. Whatever flavor of Linux you have, let it let it do its thing. Does that affect servers as well? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Servers are Linux. Okay. Yes, they are. Uh, yes. Well, many of them. Linux servers <laughs> are Linux, yeah. Um, Microsoft then have released their Patch Tuesday patches. Um, 74 bugs have been squished in Windows and Office, including Office for Mac. Um, and there is one zero day in Internet Exploder included for fun, too. <laughs> so patchy, patchy, patch, patch. I got to say, I, I think Office 365 on the Mac is actually a bug. I We will not see eye to eye on this. I spent an hour and a half trying to figure out how to add a trend line to a line graph. I had to change it into a bar graph, add the trend line, and then I could turn it back into a a line graph. And the instructions on how to put a, a, a trend line onto a graph said to turn on the print preview or something like that. It was a, it wasn't print preview. It was print something else, print dialogue. I forget. Anyway, it doesn't exist. It is a menu that is not in the app. The whole thing's garbage compared to the old days. Right. But if you were to now pay for standalone, you'd get exactly the same version. I know. So it's not an office 365 issue. It's a, I'm referring to the version of, of office that we have today. When I say office 365. Okay, so it's a snatching defeat, beloved from, Excel defeat, is... defeat from the Joe's of Victory thing. It's like, <laughs> you had a perfectly good app. Why did you break it? Yeah. Anyway, that was fun. Yeah, regressions are nasty. Uh, and then finally, if you are an NVIDIA user, there has been updates released to their drivers, etc. for Windows. So grab those for yourself. Hmm. If that affects Security you. Security updates to a graphic. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, this yeah, stuff those... is in the kernel. I- Every driver, remember, is running at the absolute highest privilege. Drivers are one of the most dangerous things. Hmm. Okay. Drivers are you inserting code from a third party into the very core of the OS. There is a driver is equivalent of a kext file. So Windows people have drivers, Mac people have kext files. They are they're important to keep patched. All right. Very very privileged. In terms of notable news, then, uh, Google have patched a bug in their Beam feature in Android, which is basically AirDrop for Android. Um, it was a fairly nasty bug, but thankfully, this it, it would allow an attacker to push malware at your device. But the silver lining is that you would get a pop-up saying, do you want to accept the file? Now, if you said yes, then you, what a problem. But anyway. Um, it has been patched, but of course, many people can't get patches on their Android stuff. Thankfully, the simple solution is either turn off Beam or always be very careful before clicking OK on a prompt. And actually, thinking about it, doesn't matter whether or not you patch. <laughs> always be careful about accepting a prompt. And that goes for iOS users as well, while we're at it. Possibly, Everyone, you know, how about, OS. I think, Mac users, maybe Windows users. Yeah, even, Windows. You have those Linux users, too. Yep, yep, yep. And yep. your IoT you devices. Yes, if you say yes, you have you, that's not a security vulnerability. That's an organic vulnerability. Like, <laughs> yeah, anyway, um, if you still have Office for Mac 2011 installed, probably time to get rid of it now because there are in the wild attacks against a long known security vulnerability in this out of support app. 
otherwise known as the last good version of Excel. But okay. Yes, I'm afraid it's now it's dead, Jim. Yeah, um, I think there were a fair number of people complaining, and well, maybe not in our community, but uh, about Office 2011 being 32-bit and not being able to go to Catalina because they didn't want to update their Office 2011. Wow. So, uh, yeah, maybe they should do that. Yeah, they should. It's, it is it is now time. I mean, there's been known vulnerabilities for ages, but now they're actually being attacked in the wild. So it really is, it's had its day. Like, it's it's done. Let it go. Um, Mac OS Catalina users should be aware that if you use encrypted email and you do not have full disk encryption enabled, which is an extremely odd configuration for someone who cares enough about security to encrypt their email, but not enough about security to go with the defaults and just let the Mac encrypt your whole drive. I can't comprehend why anyone would run in that configuration. How and ever, if that is you, be aware that Siri is maintaining a cache of information that it uses locally. So the whole point about Siri is it does all of its magic locally rather than in the cloud. But in order to do that, it has to sort of rewrite your data into searchable structures. And in so doing, it is taking information from your encrypted emails and putting it into these caches, basically. Mm-hmm. And so if you then don't have full disk encryption, then that information is now not encrypted, but stored on your disk. But again, everybody, you should have full disk encryption enabled. It's the default. So don't try to be difficult and make yourself less secure by taking the hard road. I'm thinking maybe maybe it's time for a tiny tip that says, here, click this button. Yeah. <laughs> or the tiniest of tiny tips indeed, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's just a screenshot with the button. <laughs> you should do that screenshot with the button that just pointed at the, an arrow that's pointed at the button that just goes, do this. Yes. I have then collected together all the Facebook news because it is such a mixed bag. Hmm. Um, okay, we're going to be a roller coaster here. Absolute roller coaster here. I think I've done it in. Actually, I may have gotten the order slightly wrong to make it end on a high. Sorry That's about that. Okay. Uh, we'll the first find out. One, It'll be a mystery. We don't know. Yes. So the first story is the fact that there was a very scary bug in the iOS version of Facebook where the camera would unexpectedly activate in situations where it shouldn't. Yeah, that was Um, an interesting one. Yeah, I think it's a bug, but I also have complete and utter understanding for why people are just like, yeah, right, bug. This is, you know, I'm not giving Facebook the benefit of the doubt. This was malicious and I just got caught. I I can understand how people would refuse to give Facebook the benefit of the doubt. I they may I have a little see, bit of previous. I didn't see uh, any videos of it, but the screenshot that I saw showed that it just sort of showed up like the, somebody had a picture, a screenshot of their phone, and it was like you could see the carpet on either side of part of Facebook. So it, yeah, it, it was basically an layer behind one of the one of the interfaces. Yeah, so it wasn't even a, it wasn't doing a good job of of spying on you if it was intentional. It, but I'm, I look, I'm that, pretty sure being serious, I'm pretty sure it was a bug. It's yeah. basically it, it, the interface that you should that should activate when you click a certain button was activating too early. Um, it, it, it's it's silly software engineering. 
But yeah. I, it's so hard to convince people that, no, 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 this was innocent, because so often, <laughs> yeah, it's not true. Yeah. As illustrated by the next story, leaked internal Facebook documents reveal disturbing information. Basically, they uh, switcheroo was one of the words they used to describe their privacy policy. They're going to do a privacy policy switcheroo to trick people into granting away rights. Good on you to be so blunt about it in your internal emails. Um, there's details about how they abuse their data to try to outcompete uh, YouTube and a bunch of other stuff. There's how some people got like access to APIs after they were officially discontinued. Basically, slimy, 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 mix, slime, slime. It's uh. just all the reasons why people don't want to give Facebook the benefit of the doubt. How old is this? Well, so I mean, I'm not sure when the documents go back to. They've just been they've just been revealed now, so right. it's news. But this is stuff that happened over the past couple of years, right? I mean, it it's good to know when it's new, new bad versus old bad that we just didn't know about yet. I guess <laughs> I'm really looking for the silver lining a little bit here. Yeah. I don't know. Privacy policy switcheroo is my new least favorite word. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember. I heard somebody describe that one in detail, and it was particularly egregious. It's just the concept. Just the the attitude it reveals is actually the most disturbing of all. Yeah, yeah. Complete and utter disregard for morality. Yeah, uses of the enemy, and they're there to be exploited. Hmm. Um, Facebook's bizarre policy of saying that politicians can do anything has had another interesting side effect. Facebook decided that pro-vaccination adverts should be pulled on political grounds because people people get very offended by that. But politicians can lie through their teeth. I saw a combination of this that was was really bad. There was um, a pro-vaccination ad that was not allowed to be um, was not allowed to be on Facebook, and it got pulled. And an anti-vaxxer uh, politician, because they're allowed to lie, was uh, actually got elected using Facebook ads about why you shouldn't vaccinate your children. Yeah, yeah. So this train wreck continues. Uh, Facebook are working on using facial scanning as a new form of two-factor auth because we completely trust Facebook with that. Mm-hmm. This is still in the works, so maybe this will get deep sixed and may never occur, but they're working on it, so yay. And Facebook were very proactive, so they've been they've been very big to say they're in the they're in the process of auditing a whole bunch of stuff since Cambridge Analytica. They've seen the light and they're auditing. Well they have proactively, as part of this audit, told us that one hundred of their developers were abusing APIs that they had officially closed, but seemed to have forgot to actually close. So they changed the policy, but not the actual APIs. And then they went back and looked through the logs and found 100 apps continuing to use the APIs because, well, they left them on. Uh, but the yeah. silver lining here is Facebook found it themselves. Right, right. They did, actually, it was 100 devs, not 100 apps, right? Sorry, 100 developers, yes. Yeah, yeah. So they did find this and they walked out into the open and shined a light on it. So I'm not going to yell at them for that one. I mean, it appears to have been a mistake, and they confessed it. Yes, okay. they closed these APIs for the purpose because they knew they were privacy invading, and then they just closed them by saying they were closed instead of actually closing them. 
how how many times does Mark Zuckerberg get to 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 fake say he's sorry and that he's going to do better? Because I don't believe him anymore. Switcheroo, my yeah. Anyway, my I'm fed up. I've I've yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, Meanwhile, I'm, I'm really working on a way to, uh, to yeah. Try to- <laughs> Okay. Meanwhile, uh, another switcheroo, perhaps. So Facebook have rolled out a traditional payments infrastructure and no one is batting an eyelid because it's not their cryptocurrency. I think they only put the cryptocurrency out there so that they could put this this regular payment service out there without anyone batting an eyelid. Oh, no, really? Well, that, it just strikes me as if they had just tried to do Facebook Pay without having first tried to do Libra, they would not have gotten away with Facebook Pay. But now that they've tried Libra, they have literally just lost Facebook Pay and no one's batted an eyelid. It's out. Because it doesn't have cryptocurrency in the title? Right, it's just a normal credit card, like Apple Pay or whatever. But Facebook are now gathering people's financials and acting as people's bank. Because they don't know enough information already. But hey, it's not cryptocurrency, so it's okay. Why does Facebook have to do this? Why why do you have to be a bank, too? It's valuable. Darn. Knowing what you buy is darn valuable. Yeah. And then the icing on the cake is an opinion piece in the Washington Post. It's written by a former... Facebook employee. This guy basically worked outside of Facebook and was campaigning against the abuses of Facebook. And then when Facebook had one of their, oh, I'm terribly sorry, we must do better, they hired him. And so he was like, I don't really trust them, but how can you not, you know, if the company you've been criticizing for years asks for your help, how can you not go in and help? Oh. So he did. Yeah. Yeah, and now he's not there anymore. Oh, really? Why? Well, I. So the, the, the title of the piece is, I worked on political ads at Facebook. They profit by manipulating us. That's the headline. I just pulled out the paragraph that sums up the article. I mean, the rest of the article puts meat to these bones, but this, this, this is the essence. The real problem is that Facebook profits partially by amplifying lies and selling dangerous targeting tools that allow political operatives to engage in a new level of information warfare. Its business model exploits our data to let advertisers aim at us, showing each of us a different version of the truth and manipulating us with hyper-customized ads. Ads that, as of this fall, can contain blatant, false, and debunked information if they're run by a political campaign. As long as Facebook prioritizes profits over healthy discourse, it can't avoid damaging democracy. Wow. So that's the guy's thesis, and he backs it up in the rest of the article. Wow. You see why I'm cranky at Facebook? Yeah. Oh, Google. I mean, any attempt to look at, like, to try to turn your head sideways and squint at them allowing lying in in political ads, but not in other ads, you you can't possibly come up with a justification. No. If Other they, than, hey, you should invest in Facebook because look at all the money they're making off of people's data. Right. I mean, y- y- you could sort of say, well, politicians can post anything they like, but we're not going to sell them ads. We're not going to we're not going to take their money to spread their lies. But no, no, they're happy to take their money and to let them say whatever they want. 
Yeah, just just in case anybody thinks we're we're being silly here and missing a, a point, they they came out with a policy that said that you're not allowed to uh, to lie in ads. Uh, you know, fact checking shows that it's lies. You're not allowed to do it unless it's a political campaign. I mean, yeah, just, just as simple as that. If what a great double standard! Like, oh no, it would be terrible if someone took your money fraudulently, but take your country fraudulently. That's fine. Fine, no problem at all. Boy, Google News. Now, this is there's much more happy in this one. Um, however, Google have also launched their own banking service to very little fanfare. So now Google and Facebook are in the financial services businesses, hoovering up information. We also learned. I would put my money 10 to 1 in a Google checking account before a Facebook checking account. Just saying. Oh, yeah. Between those two, sure. (laughs) Going in neither. Sure. (laughs) My shoe is my higher priority, though. (laughs) (laughs) Mattress. Mattress, then Google, then Facebook. Right. Um. More disturbingly, probably, we now know about something called Project Nightingale, which is a partnership between Google and a large American health provider where Google would basically act as the data broker for this health provider's many different hospitals and so on and so forth. Technically speaking, all entirely legal because American law allows companies to shuffle around data without people's consent or even informing People that their data is being shoved around. No, no, no. We, HIPAA says we have to sign something when we go to the doctor's office that says, and we're going to share this with third parties because, like, we might need to, okay? They right. Yes. Yeah, so you have to consent something. to the generic yeah. third parties. But the actual, sorry, what I, what I was trying to say is that once you consent to third parties, that's basically, it could be anyone. Hmm. Like, you know, third, so. Turns out that technically speaking, this is all entirely legal. But Google have been hoovering up all of the, uh, an amazing amount of American health data. So what? But so, what have they been doing with it? I mean, have they been protecting it? Training or? AI. They've been using it to train AI. They're literally using the data. Hmm. They're not just shoveling it around for the benefit of the company. They are they are using it to learn. They are harvesting it for value. Interesting. I'm, so I'm using this training data. I'm really having trouble with the optimism here, but I, I'm, let me work this one, see if I could do it. Um, one of the things I know that uh, people have discovered is uh, actually the CDC has used uh, Google search trend results to find, to, to track the progress of the flu across the country. And I'm wondering whether they're using the data to do something like that, where they're they're trying to use the data to to track diseases and learn, you know, use it through AI, but to learn to be able to help us with diseases and maybe not being sick and dying. I hope so. I hope there's a, there's I, I'm sure there is some good. Yeah, I'm sure there must be. The, the, is it is it really be. that we're appalled that? Our systems allow this? Is that really the, or, or is is this really a, a point at Google and say you're evil and you've done something awful and you should be ashamed of yourself like Facebook that should be? It's not either or. And for me, it's not either or. So on the one hand, just because you don't have a legal obligation to be open and transparent, 
doesn't mean I can't be cranky at you for not being open and transparent. Secondly, why on earth don't you have a legal obligation to be open and transparent? So I, I'm perfectly happy to be both of those. Okay. Hmm. Right. I mean, the law does not say that you cannot be open and transparent. It says you don't have to be. <laughs> Google chose not to be. I am going to criticize them for that. I'm just trying to also, picture that, though. I mean, what, a press release saying, hey, look what we're doing. I don't know. Well, no, the company should say to people, instead of generic third parties, we are sharing this information with Google. This is a project designed to achieve blah goals. These goals are in your interest because they will have blah health outcomes. And then this question you're asking of, surely there must be a silver lining. This must be doing some good. Well, we'd know because it would say the reason we're sharing this with Google is because we're trying to analyze X, Y, or Z. We're hoping it will save so many lives. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it does remind me of, uh, I signed up for the research app that that's out on the iPhone. I don't know if you're going to be mm-hmm. talking about that, but, um, it, you go through a long process of learning for each one of the health studies where it explains to you exactly, I mean, in the kind of words that you can understand, why do we want to collect this data? Well, here's what we're trying to figure out. You know, we're trying to f- solve these kinds of problems. Well, how are you going to use my data? Where is it going to be stored? And they make you acknowledge each one of these things that it's telling you. And it's it's very specific. I mean, it takes probably a good 10 minutes to fill out to do one of these i did the um the heart one and i'm going to do the hearing one next i'm too old for the woman's study (laughs) um because of what you've just described no it's not in the show notes here oh (laughs) there is no security issue that was that would be the other show everything everything is awesome (laughs) well i mean i I will be talking about on let's talk apple okay Um, good as an example of Apple continuing to positively engage with health. Yeah, yeah. Um, thankfully, Alison, in this case, I can pivot very cleanly to because Google really is a, a, a company with two very distinct faces because they have a long history of having extremely good open source people who do extremely pro everyone thing. So wh- while they are, you know, Dyson's of data, they are also open source people and extremely talented nerds. So they have those two sides, whereas Facebook is missing that second side. So I can now happily switch for two stories. So we've had two not-so-good stories, and we have an equal and opposite two good stories. So first off, Google is launching something called Open Titan, which is a project to develop an open-source version of the secure enclave for Android. So in other words, open-source hardware specifications and matching firmware and so forth specifications to allow anyone to make an Android device with the equivalent technology of the secure enclave you will find in iOS devices. Wow, that's cool. Extremely good. Google are also continuing to work hard to improve Android security. They have now come up with something called the Android Security, sorry, the App Defense Alliance, where a whole bunch of security companies are working together to proactively vet apps as they come into the Play Store. Oh, neat. So, you know, I can't find anything bad to say about those two stories, so I'm happy to be able to pivot on this one. Yeah, what's, uh, you said alliance, that suggests that they're doing this together with someone else? Yes, uh, I don't remember what's off my head. It's in the show notes, but they're basically security okay. companies. So security companies oh, okay. working together. Okay, got you. Okay, cool. Yeah. So the idea is that apps will get better scanned as they come into the Google Play Store. Excellent. Yeah. All all good stuff. 
Okay, uh, then we have just a bunch of country-specific stories that I think are worth pointing out here. So Russia have gone ahead with their version of the Great Firewall of China, but it's it's not the Great Firewall of China. It's not really a firewall. It's sort of... Well, I, I guess if you want to read the details, the Naked Security article is sort of explained it, but the basic idea is... They want to be able to disconnect themselves from the world and continue to have a functioning internet. So they can basically fall back to a national internet should should they decide to go to cyber war with anyone. Hmm. Didn't, Which didn't Iran is do act- something like that? Where they had it open and then they could turn a switch and turn it off? Turn yeah, it but they, it doesn't continue to function. When they do that, that's like hitting the giant big red button. Oh, okay. In this case, they would end up with a Russia nest that will be functional. Okay. So that's the big difference. It's not just an off switch, it's an isolate switch. Within a given definition of function. Well, <laughs> all their, they, will have their, they will have a fully working DNS infrastructure, they will have all of the Russia-hosted stuff, uh, and in fact, Russia has had laws for a long time forcing a lot of companies to keep Russian data in Russia, which is all part of this, well, if we have it here, we can isolate it all. Hey, maybe we'll see. <laughs> picture they turn it off and all, and it doesn't allow outgoing traffic. So all of a sudden, all these spam bots go away and all this malware just stops. <laughs> well, there is your silver lining. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> that would certainly be true. And I, I would imagine quite a lot of organized crime would vanish off the Internet, too. Wouldn't that be is, interesting? Oh, it would. Wow. <laughs> and then we switch to the U.S. And these are actually um, all good news stories. So... Oh, no, they're not. Sorry. One bad news, <laughs> then good. Sorry. One bad first, but then I finish on three good. Okay, good. Uh, so police were able to successfully get a warrant to search an online DNA database. So the da- DNA database had privacy rules saying that your stuff was private and police got a warrant and now it isn't. So know that if you submit your DNA to a DNA database, it is not. The privacy policy is meaningless. It, it can be overridden by a warrant. So the, there are legal warrants where it's a targeted, very specific, small thing they're looking for, or there is the kind of warrant where somebody just says, yeah, here, throw a net in here and see what you can find. Well, that's sort of how these DNA databases are literally used. It's We don't have any leads, but we have some DNA. Let's see if anyone in this database matches. Oh, so you're saying by definition, a net is what you need to use in order to to work with these kind of databases? That's the only value they provide. Well, but you could have DNA from one person that you know who they are, and then you can and try to link from there. It could be, possibly. But what you're trying to do is you have DNA of a suspect who you don't know who it is, right? That's the problem to be solved. And what you're hoping is that someone in their extended family has used the DNA database. And so you go a searching, and then you're in the hope that you will find some family members and then be able to link back. That's sort of the point of these. Yeah. Anyway, switching to happier news. Okay, I'm sorry, but I thought this happened before. I thought this happened a long time, a while ago. No, no, the last time it was an open source database. Okay, but open source database was intentionally public policies. Right. So it was a database whose job it was to be a public repository of DNA information. So people who put their information in knew they were making it public, and the police were like. Public. Thank you, thank you then. Okay. Exactly. And you, you sort of can't argue with that. It's like, that's what public means. 
Yeah, the but one thing was, you can argue about is whether you have the right to put your DNA on, because if Bart puts his on, then we know we have a connection to his brother. Right? Yeah, and that is a really open question with DNA, because it's not just mine. It's yeah. it's my it's very much my brother's, quite a lot my parents, and not an insubstantial amount my grandparents. Yeah. It's the way you it know? works. And then we go back true. down the tree, cousins. Yeah. All right, good, good. let's get some good news. Yes, so <laughs> the Pentagon has published AI guidelines. This is actually fascinating. So they've got together a committee of experts to try and dig up some guidelines. The logic being that we should figure out what the rules are before there has been, quote, an incident. Oh, really? So, yeah, so this is actually really good. And um, now the chairperson... Is definitely technically competent. I'm not sure I trust him as far as I can throw him, but it's Eric Schmidt. Oh, really? Who mm. always strikes me as a bit Zuckerbergy in terms of his emotional roboticness. Um, but but not his sliminess. That is that is a fair point. Yes, okay. yes, that is that is a very fair point. Um, but uh, there are other people on the committee who I definitely respect, like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, say. Oh, really? Yeah. So they've come up with these guidelines uh, where AI, when used within the military, should be responsible. Human beings should always guide the development and deployment of AI systems and determine their outcomes. It should be equitable. AI systems should not harm people through unintentional bias. It should be traceable. AI algorithms should be transparent and auditable. Now, that is... That is a huge deal outside of the military. That is a huge deal. Uh, you should ask some Apple people about Apple Card and transpar- and traceability, because that's a problem with the algorithms for defining people's credit history. They're not transparent or auditable. So we're saying that these AI algorithms should be better than that. Uh, reliable. De- designers must define the scope of an AI system's task and ensure it doesn't overstep into other areas. In other words, the AI will do this and no more. And it should be governable. Humans should basically have the off switch. Hmm. So these are, you know, big, broad guidelines to drive the design of AI systems that don't exist yet. And you definitely want to have the ethics of AI in place before you start designing, not as an afterthought tagging onto a working system. Right, because you can easily back into the wrong thing and say, ooh, that'll be hard to put back. Yep. So now, now is the time. You do this before it's ubiquitous, not after. So I actually think this is a great sign of responsibility to think up front, to gather a group of experts and ask them to come out basically with the morals and ethics of AI within the military establishment. And this is not only AI that shoots guns. This is all AI within the military, whether it be for figuring out how to route an armored personnel carrier across an obstacle field or whether it be how to automatically shoot down a tank from 5 million miles away, like all of it. It's It's not only the thing you would expect. It's all of it. I wish I could find, I I had a great palate cleanser I just thought of, but I can't seem to find it in my Twitter feed, but it was, it was uh, one of my developer uh, people that I follow tweeted two pictures. And the first one said, uh, this is, this is people thinking that AI is going to take over the world. And it was these two people with like horrified looks on their faces. And then they said, and this is my attempt at AI. And it was a picture of a cat and it said dog on it. (laughs) 
<laughs> nice. Um, so Microsoft, in the same way that they are honoring the GDPR across the world, are going to do the same with California's new privacy law. They're going to honor it across the entire U.S., even though it's only technically a state law for California. They're just going to say, yeah, all U.S. citizens get the same rights as California. Oh, that's excellent. Now, have, have we really talked about what that privacy law is? Nope, because I'm not a Californian, so unlike the GDPR, I don't know much about it. Okay, well, yeah, but you're the one who's always teaching me how our government works. <laughs> I've learned about a third of what I know about our government from Bart. So, uh, uh, my understanding is it's GDPR light. Okay, cool. I was hoping you. I have not heard anything. anyone complaining it's terrible, and I have heard people say it's a really good step forward. Excellent, excellent. Oh, I like Microsoft doing that. Hopefully, some other companies will jump on that their bandwagon. Yeah, I mean, and you know, it's easier. Instead of having to make special rules, just do the right thing everywhere. Definitely easier. Yeah, I, I, that kind of stands in line with, I understand a lot of car companies, when they had to do a lot to help their emissions in California, they just said, oh, well, it's gonna, it costs us a lot of money to do it like 12 different ways. Let's just do it the way we do it for California. So other, other states got the benefit of the, uh, the tough laws we had to try to clean up our air mess, which is so much better now than it used to be. Yeah, you can see mountains, apparently. Yes. We saw downtown LA from Orange County today. It was like, what? That's crazy pants. Cool. Um, and then finally, the ACLU have had a pretty major victory. Um, a federal court has ruled that suspicionless searches of travelers' phones and laptops at US borders is unconstitutional. Oh, really? 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 Now, this is a step towards the Supreme Court, probably. But nonetheless, okay. for a federal court to rule, is that is a big victory by the ACLU. That's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, so that then takes us to suggested reading. Quite a few here I want to draw your attention to. A lot, lot of good stuff here. Uh, a new one on me. The, new, the latest expert advice with ZDNet have wrote a nice article explaining why. Um, if you are unfortunate enough to get struck by malware, do not reboot your computer. That is more likely to help the infection get worse than to do anything else. Best case scenario, it achieves nothing. Worst case scenario, you make everything worse. That's specifically so ransomware. Yes. Not just any old so, malware. Yeah. The, the arguments are, it's not likely to help. But with ransomware, it's likely to actually do harm. Wow. Hmm. What you should do with ransomware is immediately put the computer to sleep and plug it out of the network. Don't shut it down, because then you'll have to boot it to get it back up again. Right. Put it to sleep. Basically, immediately pause it and then get it to an expert. Huh. And let them unfreeze it, salvage what can be salvaged, because the encryption takes time. Sometimes, oh. in fact, apparently it's quite common for the encryption to run into bugs and the encryption process to fall over, to crash, to stumble on a file that was in some way unexpected. And if you reboot the computer, what you do is you let it start over again. Interesting. Uh, okay. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So I said it was news to me. I hadn't. I, I hadn't heard that advice yeah. before. So I thought it was worth. Yeah. In terms of news, then. Uh, Brave 1.0, the Brave browser has come out of beta. 
I don't know what to make of this browser. They they sort of have this model where they block all of the ads and then they offered websites a partnership where they could put up vetted ads in exchange for the revenue being shared between Brave, the company, getting a huge chunk of the revenue and the site owners getting revenue and the people using the browser getting revenue. It sort of felt a bit extortion-y to me. We're going to block all ads apart from these ads you pay us for. Yeah. Huh. So I'm very mixed about. Well, actually, no, I'm not mixed about it. I'm going to go. I'm not touching it with a ten foot barge pole. <laughs> okay. But there are a lot of people because basically, yes, they are ads, but no, they're not tracking. So I, I can see. It's just shame of you know nice website you got there. Shame if anything were to happen to it. Yeah, I, yeah. It just feels ick to me. Hmm. All right. Anyway, that is that is what it is. Um, we now know, because it's in the beta version of iOS 13.3, that Safari will have support for NFC, excuse me, NFC and USB and Lightning-based FIDO2 security keys. In other words, all of that cool stuff we talked about a while ago um, about uh, the FIDO2 is also that other buzzword whose name I now can't remember that we did a whole episode yes. about and I made... Yes, the we how was the <laughs> buzzword. Can't remember the buzzword now. Fido two is just part of it. Anyway, really cool security stuff coming to iOS very shortly. It's now in beta, so that is superb. So your that is cool. Your YubiKeys and stuff will work within Safari do, on iOS. Do um, would you plan on getting that? Um, maybe web often. It's yeah. See, web author is more interesting to me. So, web author means the phone is the dongle. Okay, I was wondering was that the word you were trying to remember? It is the word I was trying to remember. Good. Okay. So, what's cool about the latest version of iOS is that it supports web author. So, as well as having these hardware keys, which have the advantage of being portable, right? You can take that same key to many computers and bring your identity with you. So that's why okay. those are advantageous. Mm-hmm. But the other advantage is the OS can be one of those security keys. So you can have extremely good authentication against the device itself. So basically, the CIOS do both is brilliant. That's, that covers all your bases. Now, does, uh, does Android support that yet? I seem like they would. Certainly the latest versions on the Google approved phones do. Okay, good, good. Yeah, because they've got, I mean, they were ahead on NFC for sure. Right, and Fido 2 is very heavily driven by Google. They are, I mean, it's open source, but Google are one of the, again, with their good hat on, Google are one of the forces driving the whole Fido alliance. Cool. Um, yeah, also in the cool category, DuckDuckGo's Privacy Essentials plugin has returned to Safari when Apple changed the rules on plugins to make them way more secure. DuckDuckGo had to redo their plugin, so it vanished for a while, but it is back, and it is now available through the Mac App Store using all of the modern privacy-protecting APIs. Oh, cool. Um, it's, I've, I've installed it just to see what it's like. It's kind of interesting. So it, it, it lets you bring up a dashboard telling you what's going on privacy-wise on any website, which is kind of cool. Hmm. But the That's icon the- sort of collapses all of that complicated information into a simple grade. So as you browse the web, you'll see A, B plus, B minus, C. <laughs> Interesting. But doesn't show you the detail? Well, no, you click on it to get the detail, right? But its icon is a quick glance of a grade. 
So if you don't want the detail... Oh, oh, okay, you can have either one. Huh. Okay, now, so you, you have both, right? So the button you click to see the detail is an icon, but that icon is a grade. Oh. So you know the way in the menu bar is where your plugins go, like where your one password button yeah. goes? Yeah, so it'll just, so instead oh, of it, that's cool. Yeah, so instead of being a dumb icon, it's a grade. So I thought that was clever. It's, yeah, it's a nice tool, actually, because Firefox now has really nice privacy tracking stuff built in, and now you can get very similar-looking statistics in Safari. So, yay. Yeah, I've, I've, I've tried using the browser, and a lot of a bunch of people were talking about it in our, our Slack group over at podfeet.com slash Slack in the Security Bits mm. channel about how they liked it, but I didn't have a lot of success actually finding things using it for search, so I kind of bailed. Yeah I, yeah, I sort of prefer the idea of having a plug into my browser instead of having a separate browser. Yeah. Uh, again, there's lots more news there, but I want to jump ahead to opinion and analysis because there's some really interesting stories here for people who want to get stuck into stuff. Uh, so the first is an interesting report uh, from an undercover reporter who got a job in a Polish troll farm. So if you're curious about, you know, how does all this trolling we hear so much about all of this election you know, manipulation, all of this brand manipulation. It's just, it's not just in politics. You're being manipulated left, right, and centered. You know, everything from what toilet roll you buy to which politician you vote for. If you're curious how it works, there is now a first-hand account from the inside looking out, which I certainly, I mean, it, I wasn't surprised, but it was interesting to see how business, <laughs> it is an industry. It, uh, yeah, it's manipulation is but sort a, of like like watching hot dogs get made you'd feel kind of dirty and gross after you watched it or after you yes read it. yeah yes yeah oh yeah definitely you know the fact that it's an industry is not a positive thing it is it is a thing though um ours technically then have a very good article sort of explaining exactly why it is that pete that there are all these antitrust probes into amazon apple facebook and google like what is the concern what is you know, what is antitrust uh, because it's an odd word, really. Um, and you do need a little bit of history to understand why it's called antitrust. And the answer is because trusts were groups of companies who got together to agree not to compete. And so antitrust was a way of breaking up the trust. So it's really pro-competition. But you know, is, is there any explanation in there by company why they, uh, why why people looking at them as antitrust? Or is it a generic what it, what this is all about? Well, no. So it's what are the concerns? Like, why would you why would you be worried about Amazon. Why would you be worried about Apple? Why would you be worried about Facebook? So it, it's okay. it's both, right? It, it's putting it all into context. It's it's a good Irish technical piece. It's, yeah, because I've always wondered on the the Apple one didn't seem. I mean, I could be completely, um, you know, completely biased here. Just as an over so slight bias, but, the, but the I, I don't danger. quite find the arguments of of Apple being a, a monopoly very compelling. But it's not about monopoly, right? Antitrust is a bit more than just plain old monopoly. The issue Apple have is that for very good reasons, they are running a walled garden. But that walled garden has the potential to have antitrust implications. So it's not that they're definitely doing something wrong, but they need to be extremely careful that they don't abuse their walled garden. Because that it's having a position of power and abusing it that's the problem. And so Apple are in a position where their app store is a danger point. And it's certainly something that needs to be looked at. But just smashing it up won't help. That will probably make everything worse. So it's 
probably a case of oversight rather than it's complicated. But that that is the danger for Apple, right? That app store for iOS. Yeah, you know, um, when they they did change a bunch of the algorithms so that it wasn't quite as obvious and egregious that they were surfacing their own stuff so much. But I went to look for the research app. Man, I wish I had looked for it before they had fixed that problem because I, do you know how many things have the word research on it? I was like, oh man. Apple love these really generic names that you can't Google. I know you've complained about it many times because like photos. Oh yeah. That's not a term anyone could possibly have confusion about. Yeah. Photos. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway, so that is, you know, again, Ars Technica do good, insightful articles. So I thought it was worth mentioning. Um, how ransomware attacks then is a, an explanation from Naked Security. You know, we hear about ransomware. Okay, what is it? How does it work? Naked Security will explain it to you. <laughs> uh, and then, if you're curious as to what this new check rain jailbreak, which is the one that came out of the checkmate vulnerability, if you're wondering what that means, Ars Technica sort of have a sort of a guide. Well, I mean, we talked about it in detail on this show, but it's nice to see a you know a human-friendly article that you might share with other people who who have questions. Cool. And finally, I don't often go into Propeller Beanie with stars, but I have two stars in Propeller Beanie. So, at the moment, I don't think this is an actual real-world danger. But man, is this cool. <laughs> so, a microphone is a transducer whose intended job is to take sonic energy and transduce it into an electrical signal. Right. Turns out the circuitry we use to implement microphones in all of our home speakers, HomePod, A-Lady, the whole lot of them, Google Home, all of them, if you shine a well-tuned laser onto those same microphones which are supposed to transduce sound they will also by a side effect of how their um semiconductors physics basically <laughs> they will transduce well-tuned laser beams into sound signals so if you have a direct line of sight to a home pod and you have a carefully tuned laser you can shine invisible laser light onto the microphone and have the microphone think you're talking to it. But of course, there is no sonic energy of any kind involved here. So the person whose home pod it is you're beaming thoughts into <laughs> will not hear you. Oh. And they can command your speaker. And they can do it from a distance of many hundred yards. So if you put your home pod next to a window and your home pod has the power to unlock your front door, then someone with a well-tuned laser and a careful aim and a solid tripod could, in theory, silently tell the home pod or whatever to unlock your door. Why is this only microphones and smart speakers that can do this? You would think microphones. Oh, I guess no, no, no. I'm not is... saying it's only Microsoft. And... I'm okay. not saying it's only in smart speakers, but I'm saying that the microphones and all of the smart speakers are affected by this. Well, I guess because uh, those are things you can give commands to that would make it interesting. So basically, it's just they are affected by electromagnetic energy. Is that the uh, and and lasers can be uh, targeted because they're collimated beams? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that is basically what it comes down to. So they were designed to transduce one thing and they do, but they also transduce other things. And because lasers are so finely tuned, they can 
you can manipulate them accurately. Yeah, but so you know you what can, you can't do is manipulate them accurately through a window. Because you're going to have well, distortion through the tried. window. These, okay. these guys were able to, I mean, the window is pretty transparent. Right, but there's distortion as it goes through the glass, the two layers of glass. It splits the the laser into uh, it, it, right. and, and changes the, the you know so you get shifting of the colors and things. Does right, it, but if it's a that white light will shift into a spectrum, but single frequency will just bend. It won't be dispersion if it's only one frequency. Are they only one frequency? I mean, right, that's red, a, that's what a laser red? is. Right, it's 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 a single color collimated beam. Hmm. Which is why a laser so is red. So did they actually say they did it through windows, or did they? Was it testing without it? It's, okay, we're in we're in we're in propeller beanie unsuggested reading. I am seventy okay. percent sure they said through windows. Okay, I the only reference to a window I see in the article is the obvious mitigation is keep these devices away from windows. So uh, it, it, that right. would be trickier. Okay, but if the Again, advice is to keep them away from windows, surely. That means that that's a danger. Anyway, like <laughs> it's I say, fun. This like is in said. propeller beanie because it's darn cool physics. At the moment, this is not a real world attack. This is just darn cool. Very cool. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Also in the category of darn cool, but less scary, GitHub are storing all of the open source code they are responsible for in an Arctic vault. So as well as the seeds being safe up there in Svalbard, so is XKPSWD. Are that you is a GitHub oh, so open source project. So why are they putting it in an Arctic vault? Keep it safe. So that if GitHub servers get utterly destroyed, if some sort of if something horrible happens to GitHub's data center. So the this open is just source, one of the door data centers. It's a vault being used as a backup to offline safely archive open source code okay okay what an odd place to put it no 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 the arctic is an extremely good place to put it because the bills for running a server farm most of it are about heat dissipation the most expensive thing about any data center is cooling the arctic is really good at that all by itself okay huh don't need many chillers up there. You yeah. might even need the opposite. Yeah, right. So anyway, that that's there are other stories in suggested reading, but those are the ones I thought were worthy of calling out with a star. I have one piece of suggested listening, and then I have one palate cleanser, which also happens to be a podcast. So suggested listening is an episode of the BBC of BBC World's The Real Story called Russia's New Internet Firewall. And it's a one-hour-long show explaining in detail exactly what it is Russia has done and exactly how Russia are different to China. Because it is far too easy to say, oh, it's the Great Firewall of Russia. No, it's quite different. And if you want to know why in great detail, there's a one-hour show that explains it for human beings. It's long, but it's not evil. It's it's, it's detailed, but not impenetrable. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Now I don't know if you're talking about the podcast or about the firewall. No, the podcast. So the podcast, <laughs> it, it it doesn't go into, it's detailed, but not over people's heads. I guess okay, cool. And then palate cleanser wise, um, Ted, like Ted do cool stuff, but 
they have this thing called TED Talks Daily, which is a short 10 to 15 minute podcast released every day. So it's a nice short snippet of something cool. And this week, one of the snippets, one of these short, I think it's a 15 minute talk, managed to do something I thought was impossible. Clearly and understandably explain quantum computing and why it matters for encryption. Oh, no way. 15 minutes. And it's funny, too. Guy has a sense of humor. That sounds great. Yeah, I was genuinely impressed because quantum like, quantum computers is hard. And why it matters to crypto is hard. But this explains it really well. So I had to share. That sounds really good. I would really like to hear that. Because a lot of this, yeah, maybe, you know, yeah. that's a subject where I'd love to know a lot about it and be able to speak intelligently, but uh, haven't gotten close yet. <laughs> I understand it, I think, until I try to explain it, and then it slips through my fingers again. <laughs> well, there's there's a good one. Um, I follow Richard Feynman on Twitter, and I highly recommend it, because uh, even though he's been dead for quite a while, they, they quote him. I was going to say, does Twitter have a Ouija board? <laughs> They've got uh, quotes from him, and one of them, the one today, was something along the lines of uh, how to, lear- how to uh, learn something, uh, you know, learn it, then sit down with uh, someone who has no knowledge in the topic, say a child, and try to describe it to them. And where you get stuck, re- go back and learn that stuff more. <laughs> Iterate. That is superb advice. Yeah. Um, I always found that one of the best things. I mean, the reason I understand uh, the whole public key infrastructure is because I had to cover it in CS230 when I lectured it for two years. And I thought I understood it. And then I tried to write my lecture notes. And then I realized I really didn't understand it. So then I went and learned enough of it to write my lecture notes. And now I actually understand it. Oh, there you go. I'm going to, I got the exact quote just so we don't make Feynman sound like an idiot. Step one, pick and study a topic. Step two, explain the topic to someone like a child who is unfamiliar with the topic. Step three, identify any gaps in your understanding. Step four, review and simplify. Yeah, actually, the simplify is great because the better you understand something, the simpler your explanation gets. If someone says, if someone comes up with a really big convoluted explanation, they probably don't understand it very well. Yeah, right, right, right. The people, yeah, the people who try to snow you when you ask deeper questions, they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Okay, well, that's all I got. All right, very um, unless good. you found that palate cleanser you were hunting for in your Twitter stream. Nope, I didn't. But I gave you the gist of it, so that was uh, that Not was good. <laughs> all right, well, cool. We'll talk to you in a uh, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, we ha- I believe you guys have this weird holiday that we don't do where you eat turkey and you say thanks or something. Yes, yes. I think we'll uh, we'll probably check in then. Yeah, so I'm sure we'll do some scheduling shenanigans. But either way, if I'm not talking to all of our American listeners before Thanksgiving, enjoy it. Um, we unfortunately haven't inherited your turkey eating, but we have inherited your Black Friday thing. So I guess we get to save, but not party. Oh, That's good. Go. Anyway. Until then, and actually especially over Black Friday, for goodness sake, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to become a patron like Ricky? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. 
Want to join our Slack community because you were just listening to all the stuff Bart said was icky about Facebook? You can do that by going to podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show and see in real life the amazing quilt that Sandy made for me, for all of us actually, to designate the interlocking of all of our uh, community members here of the Nocilla Castaways, you can do that by going to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.